Well, thanks for tuning in to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm T. Lusk, and I'm the College and Young Adults Pastor here at Rolling Hills. And we're so glad that you joined us today for our third week in our series called The One. Today you're going to hear from Dr. Ben Mendrell, who is the president of Lifeway Christian Resources. And we're going to dive in together to chapter 5 of Ephesians, where we're going to explore what it means to stay in love and what it looks like in, in God's design to be married. Now here's Pastor Ben Mendrell. We pray that you're encouraged and challenged by the sermon. Well, good morning, Rolling Hills. Great to be with you. I'm so glad to be at Rolling Hills today. Jeff, what an amazing person uh, you have as a pastor. You know, I think every church and every organization can only rise to the emotional health of its leader. And Jeff is one of those people that the minute I met him, it just, it just feels so healthy. Like he really loves people, like sincerely cares about people, and it comes through and everything. You know, when I'm around Jeff, I'm not worried about catching the coronavirus. I'm worried about catching enthusiasm because he just drifts with it. So it's great to be with you. Uh, if you have a Bible today, I'd like to invite you to uh, open to 1 Samuel 14, or you can follow along on the screens if you're new around here or new to the Bible. Happy for you to do that. You've been in this series called The One, and the focus has been making God the one of your life. And so whether it's in marriage or in parenting and all these realms, uh, really success in those areas depends on loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And when Jeff told me, uh, he was inviting me to preach, and it was inside the series on marriage, I asked him if I could take this Sunday and bring a challenge to men. I think a lot of this is because of my own story, and uh, I love the, the song you talked about how God redeems your story. Uh, so much of my heart with marriage ministry over the years as a pastor has been helping men rise up and find the courage to be the leaders God's called them to be. And so, ladies, I hope it'll be okay today if I just really challenge the men. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff in here for all of us, but I want to aim at men because I have a deep conviction that men are called to be the spiritual warriors in their homes and in the church. Uh, it's no secret that the gender issue is a hot topic today. And while I do believe wholeheartedly that men and women are created equal in value and worth before God, the Bible clearly says that men and women are not the same creatures and that we were not made just the same way. So I want to draw attention to that this morning. So my name is Ben Mandrell, and I am not a woman. I hope that's obvious to you. 44 years ago, I entered into the world as a little boy. I came bouncing out uh, feet first like a jungle cat upon its prey, and I was a little man. I was a little Mandrell. God even put it in my name. That's how manly I am. And I've learned over the years, after reading the scriptures, that it really is by design that God created males and females both to reflect his glory to the world in, in a unique way, like different parts of a diamond reflect its beauty. So in Genesis chapter 5, a foundational truth. On the day that God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them males and females. And when they were created, he blessed them and he called them mankind. So you see right there, men and women were not made the same. There's a distinction even in the early chapters of, of the Bible. So we don't think the same, we don't act the same, we don't load the dishwasher the same. There's a lot of things we do differently as men and women. We don't do conflict the same, uh, we don't respond to people the same. It's, it's a lot different to be a man than it is to be a woman, and it's a lot different to be, than to be a woman than it is to be a man. So, so just quick exercise, make sure we're listening. Raise your hand if you're not a woman today. Right? Some of you men are slow to respond. That's unfortunate in this moment. 
If you're not a woman today and you're a man, I just, I've just prayed all week for you that the Holy Spirit would get a hold of you today. Because nothing I can say to compel you to be who God created you. The Holy Spirit, through his word, works in people's lives. The word does the work. So, so open your heart this morning to this passage that I've taken you to about a man named Jonathan who had a hard, strong, masculine style. And so some quick background on the passage before we jump in the text. 1 Samuel 14, a guy named Saul is the king. He's woefully inadequate. He started off strong, loving God and believing that God had a plan for the nation of Israel. But then he gets off course and starts doing things his own way. God rejects him. So Saul is a terrible excuse of a leader, but he has this one good thing going for him, his son Jonathan. And Jonathan falls far from the tree and becomes a different kind of person, a man of great faith that would not turn out and resolve to not turn out like his dad. Now, brothers, those of you who are fathers in the room, can you imagine anything worse than one of your children growing up and saying, I don't know what I want to, really want to be when I grow up, but I know I don't want to be anything like my dad. There are a lot of kids that have made that vow. Jonathan made that vow. He did not want to be like his father. He wanted to live by faith and not by fear. So, minister, I ask you before, before I read this, I mean, do you ever just feel a little dead inside? Do you ever feel depressed or disillusioned or bored with your life? In quiet moments, do you think there must be more to life than this? If that's true, which I think it's true for a lot of men, most men live lives of quiet desperation, Henry Thoreau. Listen to what Jonathan teaches us. So Jonathan shows us the way out of this. 1 Samuel 13, there's a lot of text in this passage. It's a beautiful story. Let me tell it. Now, a Philistine garrison took control of the pass at Michmash. So Israel was at war with the Philistines. And that same day, Saul's son, Jonathan, said to the attendant who carried his weapons, that's called his armor bearer back in those days, he said, come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his dad. So first of all, if you're brand new to the Bible, no problem. The Philistines were the arch enemies of ancient Israel. If you've heard the story of David and Goliath, uh, Goliath was a Philistine. So uh, the, the, the armies had been feuding, and all of a sudden, Jonathan says, why don't we jump into a hornet's nest and do something great for God, and then maybe it'll inspire other people to live that way too. And so he's willing to step out in faith, to be a model of faith, to do something great for God. And notice the word says, and he did not tell his father. Now, why is that the case? Why wouldn't you tell your dad something when you're 17 years old? Because you wouldn't think he would give you permission and so Jonathan doesn't ask his dad because know that he knows that in his hand is more bravery just in the bones of his hand than his dad has in his whole body. And he'd be, re- he'd be better off just doing it and letting his father know afterwards. He did not want to be like his father. And so in verse 4, this is important. The writer gives us some background geography to know, to know just how dangerous the mission was. In verse 4 it says, Now there were some sharp columns of rock on both sides of this pass, that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. And then they they even had names for these these columns. Now, why is this information included? Everything in the Bible is included for a purpose. And the reason these details are included is because the author wants you to know just how insane this mission was. Not only was it two on 20, but they would have to scale the wall of doom to even get there. And so 
I'm a visual person. I always try to provide some pictures when I can. So I found this picture of, of what it might have been like for Jonathan and David kind of secretly scaling this hill. If they were going to fight these guys, they would have to get there first. And so they had a severe disadvantage with the geography. And so the cliffs were a challenge, but to make matters worse, look what Jonathan says in verse 6. He wants to make it even worse. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised or unholy men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving us, whether by many or by few. I mean, what a, what a model of faith, a model of manhood. He's, he's not afraid to proactively face conflict. He doesn't accept passivity as the norm for his life. He goes after the conflict. And so strong is his faith in God that he's willing to put some skin in the game, all of his skin in the game. And he says, perhaps the Lord will work in our behalf. What a confession of confidence. Where are the men in the church today that live like this, that lead their families like this, that embrace risk as part of the adventure, as part of the faith journey? They will not just settle for mediocrity. Where are the Jonathans in the church today? I believe that we're in a full-blown code red man crisis in America. It's bleeding into the church. And it's been said this way, as the man goes, so goes the marriage. As the marriage goes, so goes the family. As the family goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes society. So if you, affect, if you want to affect society, we got to get back to affecting and influencing men. And so many of our ills today can be traced back to a lack of fatherhood. A lack of men acting like men. And the greatest need in our country today is to rise up and train men to be the men that they were designed to be. The spirit of Jonathan has to be revived in the church. And that spirit for adventurous faith, it's lodged deep in every man's chest. Men are just grown up little boys. And you see this in little boys all the time. Years ago, my boys and I, we were walking through a forest as a family. And and my son Miles saw a stick. It looked almost just like this. And he immediately, he saw it on the forest floor and he, he ran over and he picked up the stick and it became something very important to him because what you and I would see as an ordinary chunk of a tree, just a typical tree, he saw as a ruinous galactic gun. And he picked this stick up and he kept it with him the whole day. It came home in the car. It found its way into his room because a weapon of this magnitude could not be left on the forest floor for unskilled hands to discover. I mean, he really saw a a weapon when he saw this. Now, what is wrong with a little boy that sees something like this and sees a weapon for heroic adventures? Let me tell you what's going on with him. He has a man head. And inside every man's head as a little boy, it gets squeezed out of us as we become adults, is this heart for adventure and heroic acts and faith and bravery, stories about Jesus calling them away from the water's edge to go into the dangerous spiritual warfare of the New Testament. That's the calling that God's placed in our lives. We've lost it. And we're afraid to let it out, the spirit of Jonathan. I think every dude wants to be Jonathan. I don't think anybody wants to be Judas. I don't think anybody wants to run when the going gets tough. I think we want to be Peter who pick up swords and slice off ears if that's what it takes to defend Jesus. And so I've just seen this over the years in myself. I've seen it in brothers I've walked with that inside the heart of a man is a thirst for action and adventure and faith. 
And so to be forthright, just to just kind of level the playing field here, even though man is woven into my name, I'm not as manly as I might appear. I've never killed a wild beast with a rifle or a bow. I've, I've run over a few squirrels, and I always feel bad about it. I've never been with a woman other than my wife. I've never been to a military battle and returned home a hero. I've never scaled the side of a mountain, even though I lived in Colorado. I've never reeled in a 40-pound fish. I've not done most of the things that our culture would say are required to be thoroughly masculine. But thanks be to God that the Bible we read says that the measure of a man is not the number of deadheads in his house or a history with 100 women or uniforms with medals of distinction. What God wants from me, what God wants from every man is a heart that's ready to follow him into the unknown, to embrace risk, a passion to step out and show the world what faith looks like. And to show our children so that they would grow up with permission to go after God with great faith. Where are they going to learn it if they don't learn it from us? And the Bible says in verse 7 that Jonathan has this stout heart and he's looking for somebody to go with him. And so he says to his armor bearer, will you come with me? Now look at verse 7. His armor bearer responds, do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I'm completely with you. One translation says, I'm with you heart I'm with you, soul. So not just one, but two men are now willing to follow God by faith and not by sight. Are you willing to walk by faith and not by sight? Or do you think that being a spiritual leader means being nice? In his best-selling book, Wild at Heart, which many of you probably have come across over the years, John Eldridge he offers his opinion on where men are today in the church of Jesus. He says this, Christianity, as it currently stands, has done damage to masculinity. When all is said and done, I think most men in the church believe that God put them on earth to be a good boy. The problem with men, we are told, is that they don't know how to keep their promises or be spiritual leaders or talk to their wives or raise their children. But if they'll try real hard, they can, catch, they can reach the lofty summit of becoming a nice guy. That's what we hold up as models of Christian maturity. Really nice guys. What is Eldred saying? Why did this book strike such a chord and sell millions of copies? Because every man knows that having good manners and good morals is not all there is to being a man. But there's something within us that desires to step out and to lead our families boldly and with faith like Jonathan had. And so Jonathan has the green light from his friend to go after it for God. Let's do this. In verse 8, he mixes it up even more. He says, all right, Jonathan replied, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to cross over to these evil, terrible, scary men, and we're going to let them know we're coming. We're going to call in advance. We're going to let them see us. Now, you got to wonder what the armor bearer is thinking at this point. Okay, I was okay with the two-on-20 thing. I was okay with the geography issue we had to overcome. But you want to let them know that we're coming? The only advantage in a military battle like this would be the element of surprise. So what's going on here? Jonathan wants to make it clear that if they win this battle, there will only be one person that could receive the glory for it, and it's God. He just had a heart to give God all the glory for whatever he accomplished. And so Jonathan says, let's stack the deck in their favor so if we win, only God gets the glory. And you got to admit, this is some kind of crazy experiment. Now watch what happens in verse 9. Jonathan says, here's how it's going to work. 
If the Philistines say, wait until we reach you, then we'll stay where we are and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. And so they let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. That's Old Testament trash talking right there, by the way. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. One translation says, we'll teach you a thing. One translation says, we'll teach you a thing or two. And so you can just catch the sarcasm. And what you have here is the sin of self-confidence, the contrast of those who are up on the mountain just full of self-confidence and trust in themselves. But these two unusual and rare men who believed in the power of God more than the power of men. Living or dying were in God's hands. The Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's the worst thing the world can do to us? Kill us? If so, biblically speaking, that's not the end, but a beautiful beginning. So we, we, should, we should allow perfect love to cast out fear. And so watch how the story ends, and then we'll try to make some practical application. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down. The armor bearer followed and finished them off. And that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half acre field. And terror spread throughout the Philistine camp and the open fields to all of their troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. And the earth shook and a terror spread from God. All because Jonathan had this spark of faith that created this fire. The ground shook. And isn't that the, isn't that the way we should all want to live as Christians? That we would live in such a way that because of our faith, God used it to shake the ground. So I, I just want to be clear. Whenever I teach on this, I never can't have the confidence to teach from a spirit of success when I'm teaching on a subject like this. I'm always in a spirit of striving. I'm not there yet. I, I still have a lot of work to do in my own life. But there, there have been some moments that I think have, have been impactful for our family. Uh, so a little bit in my story. In 2013, we were leading a really wonderful church in West Tennessee, and things were going great. All the, all the healthy things were reading healthy, and we felt very content. We thought we would live there the rest of our lives. I'd become a pastor of a church that was uh, just beautiful. And in the midst of that, God began to give us a desire to do something crazy, which was to resign this church and to move a thousand miles west into the unknown and start a church from scratch, just parachuting in. And when we did that, when we stepped out in faith, 65 people stood up and said, we'll move with you. And so there we went into this unknown place, this unknown city, and we started a Bible study in my home that was protested by the HOA and eventually became a beautiful little church that moved into a restored Walmart building, much like this one. Felt just like this, except we got rid of that pole. <laughs> it works great with a camera, though. Like you're in a good spot. We've... We would have taken it with poles. We, did, we were tired of setting up and tearing down. If you've ever done that, that's a lot of work. So it's like we finally get into the promised land. We've got this church that's healthy. Finances are reading good. Like new people are coming every week. Non-religious people, atheists and agnostics, like kind of living the dream. And God allows me to get this call one day. Hey, we're from Lifeway and we think, we think you might be the person God's calling to come and lead the organization into a new kind of future. It was like the sky dropped on us again. 
Like to pick up and move into the unknown to a city we've never lived in and to take on a challenge like this. And what we've tried to do as a family is we've tried to make these decisions together and we've sat down with our children and we've said, look, someday God's gonna call you to do some crazy things and when he does, you gotta say yes. It's not always gonna be commonsensical. And so it's important for us when God calls us to step out out of our comfort zones and to do something bold for him and we feel God calling us to Denver or we feel God calling us to Nashville. We feel like, Lindley and I have felt like, as long as we continue to show them the way that they'll go on and make those same kinds of decisions and not just settle for a life of comfort. Because I feel like so many people in the church, they, they just settle for a life of comfort. They stop stepping out. And so in every cliff-climbing moment, God has shown his power in my life in ways that I never imagined had I not trusted him. And it's impacted my wife. It's impacted my family because we've followed God into scary places. And I don't think he's ever going to stop calling me or you into scary places. I want to be a Jonathan, and I hope every man in the room does too. So a couple of takeaways from the text that I think have been helpful just by reading the passage. Just Here's what it says. Number one, I think this is true. Every man has a Jonathan spirit that's waiting to be released. Men feel most alive when they're moving toward the front lines, toward the sound of the gunshot. Conflict brings out the best in us, and we start to die when we're moving away from any kind of conflict. So let me explain something I've learned about working with men in ministry for the last two decades and working with women Men are emotionally modest, physically immodest creatures. Let me say that again. Men are emotionally modest, physically immodest creatures. What that means is most men in the room would rather go ahead and take off their shirt and put it around their necks for the rest of this service than to come up here and share one hurtful thing from their past. It's just easier for men to let it all hang out physically we don't buy swimsuit cover-ups. We should. <laughs> Most men, when they get out of the pool, should put something over that. But they don't. They don't care. They're physically immodest, but emotionally very modest creatures. Women are polar opposite in this regard, generally speaking. Women are remarkably free creatures with self-disclosure. Uh, they are physically modest, emotionally immodest. So what that means is a woman will unveil emotionally with strangers, letting other people see the problem areas in her personal life a lot faster than they would show off problem areas on their legs or arms. So they're more careful about showing the problems on their body, but they're less careful about showing problems in their souls. So how this plays out in local church ministry is that whenever we have something in the church, women normally flock to it. Men have to be pushed to it. Because men have this fear that they're going to get put into a position where they had to open up and start talking about their past or be asked things they're not comfortable asking. They'd rather just wall up. And this is one of the things, I mean, when I met Jeff, it's just one of those people you meet and you're just a kindred spirit. Such a heart for men, what you're doing with the Men's Leadership Network Here's what has to happen. Men have to get in the company of armor bearers. People who they believe have their back and are looking out for their back. 
before they will open up and share the vulnerable things in their lives. So, in working with couples over the years, one of the most devastating things that ha can happen to a man is that he opens up with his wife about something that's very tender and very vulnerable, and she shares it with her friends. In his mind, she is no longer an armor bearer. And it's just part of being a man that we, we are very slow to, to love because love makes us vulnerable. I love the way that C.S. Lewis writes it. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung. It will possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to nobody, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries, which is what most men do, by the way. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. It's to love is to be vulnerable. So men, we, we have got to give access to the deepest places of our heart to God and to others if we're ever going to find health. And that's one of the most frightening things for men to do. But we've got to do it. We've got to let God have a hold of all that regret and anger and bitterness and envy and jealousy and lust and pride and pornography and all these things that plague us in our private places. We've got to let all that come out so that, so that God can set us free from all of these things. Perfect love casts out fear. And so, men, we've got to let God redeem us. Second thing, and this is a great application for wives. Every man needs a loyal companion to encourage him. He's just got to have a person. He wants you to be his person. Every man needs these magical words from his wife. Do all that you have in your heart. I'm with you completely. Those are the words that, there's like spiritual steroids for a man. To know that if all else fails, she's with me. When I was um, feeling called to go to Denver, um, and to leave the South, and my wife was raised in the South, to go to a place that was so different and foreign, I, I needed Lindley to verbally encourage me. I, I did not have the strength of Abraham who said to Sarah, pack your bags, you'll like it there. <laughs> I needed Lindley to say, if you feel like this is where God's calling us, that I'm with you heart and I'm with you soul. And, and we went together. And then when we felt called to leave Denver and come to Nashville, I had to have her say, I'm with you heart, I'm with you soul. If the whole thing fails, I'm with you heart and I'm with you soul. Every man needs to hear that on a regular basis from his wife. And wives, you rarely realize how much power you have over us. I want you all to love this sermon. I want you all to go to dinner and talk about how impactful the sermon was. But it means this much to me if Lindley thinks it was a total lemon. Because in my heart, I want Lindley to be with me heart. I want her to believe in me. Every man feels that way about his wife. If all else fails, he has to have her with him. 
And so here's a challenging question. Does your man know that you would follow him if he got a word from God? Does your man know 100% that you're with him heart, you're with him soul? So here's three questions I would just leave all the men with in the room as we, as we wrap up. Number one, when was the last time that you attempted something that was sure to fail without the help of God? Just consider that. When is the last time you really stepped out and did something risky for God in ministry? You tried something new and you weren't completely comfortable with it. It's been my experience that many people that attend church become fat Christians, spiritually fat. They want to soak it up. They want to grow themselves. They want to take everything the church offers, but they don't want to get into the action. They want to inhale, but they don't want to exhale. And so as a pastor of the years, I've just watched this happen. We promote a mission trip, and 80% of the people that sign up are ladies. And then we, we promote a new study, and the vast majority that, that are showing up are ladies. Or we say, hey, we've got all these little boys and girls down in the children's ministry, and we need some help down there modeling faith for them. And most of the people that sign up are ladies. And so when is the last time that you as a man stepped up to meet a need that was outside your comfort zone? You took on a challenge. The church has got to get men doing this again. Ownership and taking responsibility. When's the last time you did that? Number two, are you personally leading your children to walk by faith? Now let me just speak to where our culture has gone in the last 100 years and how it's affected our lives dramatically. Just a few generations ago, before the information age erupted, the vast majority of men worked with their hands in fields with their boys. They spent time together in the dirt. Little boys learned their father's ways and his walk and his face and his smell. But when the agrarian age gave way to the technology age, men started climbing into their cars and leaving home for the day, getting back later and later, leaving earlier and earlier. Suddenly, little boys were being raised entirely by their mothers. A new way of life has put sons at a severe disadvantage in that they get very little access to their father's time and energy. Every boy needs a strong relationship with a father. Robert Lewis, the author of Raising a Modern Day Night, he looked back on his childhood and he wrote these words. My dad worked hard. He provided for our family materially. We were a solid middle-class family. I do have a number of pleasant memories from my boyhood. But when my dad walked through the door at the end of a long day, his personal influence began to fade. He became the invisible dad. We rarely played together. In fact, I can't remember any time we threw the ball or wrestled together. I missed the fun side of him. He never told me I love you. I never prayed with him or talked with him about spiritual things. I never knew what he believed. His inner world was a mystery to me. Would there be anybody in the room who's a father whose kids might say, my dad's beliefs and inner world are a mystery to me. This is so fixable. You know, you might think someone who's pastored churches and had seminary training, this would be really easy for me, but by nature, my spiritual life becomes a very internal thing. And I'm learning more and more how important it is for my kids to know the emotions that I'm feeling and how God's walking with me through it, decisions I'm feeling like I need to make and how they can pray for dad. 
involving them in my spiritual walk? Are we doing that? Question number three for men. Have you given your life completely to God? Until you do this, you'll never be the spiritual leader God called you to be, and you'll never escape the wake that you received from your father. So let me talk about that just for a second. Some of you received a wake from your father that you need to get out of. And the best way to illustrate that is, is, a, is a water skiing illustration. The easiest thing to do when you water ski is to hold onto the rope and to stay behind the boat. Just stay inside the wake. It's just natural. The path of least resistance. But every once in a while, for the brave and courageous, they make a move to try to overcome the resistance of the, of the wake and to get outside the wake. It takes some boldness and some courage and the potential for failure. But on the other side of that, there's joy. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if you're here today and you received a wake from your father that you want to get outside of, by the grace of God, you can do it. You can get outside the wake and create your own wake that your children love to stay inside because inside it is life and breath and everything else. So maybe you're here today and you've never fully surrendered your life to God. You've been in the driver's seat. And whether he's calling you to salvation or whether he's calling you to a new season of surrender, I just believe that God brought this message to my heart today because there's some men in this room that are ready to make that decision. And so as we close, I just want to ask you to bow your heads and I just want to lead us in prayer as we finish up. Just bow your heads for a moment. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. If you're here today and from the moment I began preaching, you felt a level of conviction. Something's been going on inside your soul. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And God's just calling you to recommit yourself to be a better leader for your family. Just call out to him right now and just confess that you don't know how to do it. Just say, Lord Jesus, nobody showed me how. I want to be a faithful, passionate follower of Jesus. I want my kids to know that I'm here to please the one. I want them to see it in me, smell it in me, feel it in me. God, give me a new heart, a new direction when it comes to opening up with my wife and my family. Give me the ability to share. To just share. God, I pray about, I just pray against the enemy who maybe even right now wants to push men back into hiding, back into fear. Oh God, give them the ability to rise up, get outside that wake. Give them the strength to do it. And Lord, I pray for anyone within the sound of my voice, man or woman, that's never given their heart fully to Jesus Christ, never received the power of redemption. You want to redeem our story, Lord. You want to put the past in the past so we can move into the future. What you did on the cross is effective for us today. And God, if there's any man or woman that just wants to receive you as Lord and Savior today to start fresh, Lord, that they would call out to you right now and say, Lord Jesus, 
forgive me for everything I've ever done, everything I've ever failed at. Give me a new heart, a new spirit, a new desire. I trust you with my life today. Today I become a Christian, a believer, a follower. And I'll follow you wherever you tell me to go. God, if there's anyone online or in this room that prayed that prayer, give them the strength to move forward and to go public with their faith, to be baptized, and to get into the action of the ministry of the local church. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills and what's going on in our church, you can download our app. Also, you can visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and on Facebook and stay up to date on what's happening at the church and ways that you can connect. Thanks for listening. We're so thankful for you.